0: Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work, here today with a double billing. Two books, two authors. The first, Dance with Chance, Robin Hogarth, Making Luck Work for You. And then, Rick Merrifield, Rethink, a business manifesto for cutting costs and boosting innovation. What do you need to do today? You'll want to listen to both. Let's start with Robin, then Rick. Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work, your audio guide to the workplace, the Work Walk, speaking today with Robin Hogarth. Robin is a, uh, a Brit living in Spain, has co-authored a book, and I'm going to let him describe his co-authors because I think I may do a misjustice to their names. But the book is about chance, entitled Dance with Chance, Making Luck Work for You. And uh, author of The Black Swan, The Impact of the Highly Improbable Nassim Talibs wrote written by true experts, informative, yet so much fun to read. And uh, that is what I, Paul McLaughlin, found in going through the book. It's very breezily written, and I'm looking forward to the discussion with, with Robin about how this book came together, as important, the expertise behind it, and a little bit more about the, um, what they would like people to take away. Uh, Robin
1: Hogarth, thanks very much for joining me. Okay, thank you very much indeed. I'm very happy to be here.
0: We started, our, uh, we started this discussion up at Tom's Restaurant. Known That's
1: right. The Seinfeld place. <laughs> the,
0: the Seinfeld fellow. And um, uh, we moved down onto Manhattan's west side. I know that uh, some of my colleagues saying that uh, venue is not terribly important, but having been in some place that you, you're rarely in New York and there you found yourself in a restaurant that you recognize from the outside.
1: No, that, was a, that, was an, that was a coincidence rather than a chance. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah.
0: That was, the dance with and chance was, found you on 113th uh, Street and uh, Broadway.
1: Exactly. Well, I'll tell you who my, my co-authors are. My co-authors are uh, Spiros Makridakis, who is an emeritus professor at INSEAD in, in France, and Anil Gaba, who is uh, actually the deputy dean of the INSEAD Business School. He's actually located in Singapore. Uh, and the way this book came about, it's an old story, goes way back to the 1970s, when Spiros and I were both young professors at INSEAD. Uh, at that time, Spiros, who was a statistician by training, was trying to see whether forecasting, how, how forecasting models worked. And he did a very interesting competition to try and see which forecasting p- models would actually predict better, the real life data. So what he did is he got lots of data, split it into a half, he fitted models in one half, then predicted to the other half. And what he found, lo and behold, was that the simple models predicted better, more accurately, than the more complex models that were being touted by the statistical profession at the time. So he found it a rather sort of heretical kind of result. And he came to me, and I'm a psychologist by training, and asked me, uh, well, Robin, if uh, st- simple models do better than statistical models, perhaps we should just use human judgment and forget about models. And I said, no, no, not at all. Because in the statistical, in in psychology, we know very well that simple statistical models can often predict much better than humans can in all kinds of diagnostic kinds of situations. So we thought, well, we ought to write about this someday. Well, it took about thirty years before we wrote it, wrote about it. But eventually, with together with the help of Anil Gabba, who is a decision scientist, we got together and we created this book.
0: It's uh, remarkable that it has the consistent tone that it uh, it does under those circumstances. Um, there'll be a series of questions that I will have because I'm fascinated by the subject. You and I talked uh, on the way here from Tom's Restaurant about, I think it's Luke Reinhardt's book, which is a cult book of the 70s in which, if I have it right, a, an individual made a series of decisions by throwing the dice. That, as you pointed out, is not the point of your book.
1: It's not the point of my book, but actually in some areas it's not a bad strategy. Uh, if we think, of, think of investing in the stock market. Um, we know Rao, that um mice sorry, that that uh, monkeys throwing uh, darts at the dartboard will do as well on average as many top uh, investment strategists. So, if in some areas, if the, you're dealing with an underlying f- random phenomenon, it's probably the optimal strategy. <laughs>
0: right. And, and I'll, uh, without without uh, belittling the monkeys, the same thing could be said for investment strategists. They too could throw the darts. Absolutely. It doesn't have to be a monkey that throws no, the
1: darts. No. Well, no, exactly. But the monkey makes the point. <laughs> <laughs> the
0: monkey exactly makes the point. Tell, I, I was never much on, uh, on statistics because I, I really couldn't understand and it seemed to fly in the face of of the way I felt, um, but has the art of statistics and statisticians changed in the 30 years since you and um, your colleague first discussed this and, and the book? Dance I d- for I, d- I
1: don't think so, and it's kind of uh, disappointing. Spiros's work uh, on the forecasting—I mean, he did this original work in the late 70s, and then replicated it many times until the 90s on increasing larger data sets. Always got the same results. And the statistical purists, however, didn't never never really liked it, because uh, they were more interested in developing fancy statistical models, which could which they thought they could they could you know take over the world with. And I think this is actually this may change now for the following reason. I think the financial crisis, which were what, what
0: may change the attitude, the, the
1: attitudes towards these these fancy statistical models, right? Because the financial crisis has. Uh, Clearly demonstrated that those fancy physical models don't somehow or other capture all the all the reality.
0: How did this happen? It couldn't. It was not predicted. It was not predicted.
1: Well, because basically the models have a restricted set of assumptions. They assume the world works in a certain kind of way, and if the world happens not to work in that kind of way, then basically they can be wrong. And uh, I think that's what's, what one of the reasons we got ourselves into this mess is 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 because the models have been far too complex and. Have not been able to capture, but, but although they're complex, haven't been able to capture the real realities out there.
0: Well, it's it's interesting that you say that, and we're we're getting more into the subject matter than the breezily written book, "Dance with Chance: uh, Making Luck Work for You," with a, a picture of a, um, uh, what is, is that? A fortune uh, cookie. A fortune cookie. That's right. Um, on the uh, on the front cover, uh, Robin Hogarth and I, Paul McLaughlin here, McLaughlin at work. Uh, delighted to talking about uh, chance because that's I, I would like to think that uh, life is not necessarily predictable and now I'm talking with Robin to to prove exactly that point. Uh, call your attention as well to a sponsor here at uh, McLaughlin at Work, Classroom 24-7. They try and take the chance away from web learning. Uh, click on them at the bottom of the screen. You can see how they may be able to help your certification training in your company, uh, all web-based, web-related, and uh, we think highly of them. They think highly of McLaughlin at work, and it's a good team. When you talk about uh, statistics and the uh, stock market, as an example, t- t- take the the crowd here listening through the uh, predictors of the depression or lack thereof that, uh, that you modeled in the book. Give us the, the story there and how it... Supports. Well, we, what we, you we, think. We,
1: we didn't model the depression in, in the book. I mean, we actually have a nice graph in the book. That, that's that, what I meant. Which, which <laughs> I'm may, sorry, um, I thought I, I,
0: I have to remember I'm dealing with a professor here.
1: Yeah. Quite literal <laughs> okay. about these kinds no, of we, things. Well, we, have, we, have, we, we show a graph of the New York stock market over about 100 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Dow Jones Index, and you see it going up and down, and it's a, in a sense it's sort of like the history of the United States over that 100-year period, right. but it's a historical record. It's not a prediction of what's going to happen. Uh, what we know about the stock market it is, looks back. It is… It the looks back. It's a proverbial it, rear-view mirror. Exactly. It's a rear-view mirror. It's, it's saying to you that if you took, look at the stock's values across 100-odd years, on average, every year they increase 7% about. But there are huge variations around that. There are some years when it goes under, there are some years when there's no movement at all, and so on and so forth. So it's only a very on average kind of story. And unfortunately, we don't live in an on average world. We live in a world when we get shocks and uh, which we have to absorb. So example, take the last 19, 2008, stock markets went down about 40% or 50% worldwide. Uh, that's huge. Uh, and it's something much bigger than anyone would, would ever have imagined. Uh, one of the reasons for this, I think, is uh, we distinguish in the book between what we two two kinds of uncertainty. One kind of uncertainty we call subway uncertainty, and subway uncertainty. Is I like the names you put on
0: this. Okay, uh, well, <laughs> seems particularly appropriate. Subway um, here in New York, but subway doesn't. That's not what you call it in Barcelona.
1: We call or, it the metro. <laughs> right, <laughs> or in <laughs> London. No, in London called the underground. <laughs> but but the, subway unser- the idea behind subway uncertainty is, is the idea we have a mythical character who goes to work every day in New York, and he can figure out how long it takes him to get to work. And on average, his times uh, look like what we call a bell curve. They're predictable within a certain range. And most of the models we have in this world, which are used for predicting stock markets and all kinds of things like that, assume some form of, unser- of of known uncertainty that we can model the uncertainty according to some statistical law. We distinguish between that kind of uncertainty and what we call coconut uncertainty. Coconut uncertainty <laughs> is the uncertainty that hits you on the head like a coconut out of the blue. Right, and and the book describes what. Coconut and the, and is. they describe it quite well. In a tropical uh, paradise, I think. Yes, is the way you see, you, we have a character called uh, called. Um, Klaus, who goes on a vacation in a tropical paradise and unfortunately meets his end when a co- coconut hits him on the head. Yeah. But the trouble is that the, those coconuts happen. These are events that are outside of the normal events. And from, from most statistical modelers just forget about them because they're too difficult to handle. But they happen. They happen all the time. And they happen, and if you, you can see. They, it a, it, we know they will happen. And we know, and we know they will happen. They're rather like large earthquakes. Uh, One of the things interesting parallels between earthquakes and financial shocks is that earthquakes cannot be predicted, uh, when a large earthquake is going to occur cannot be predicted in terms of where and when. But on the other hand, statistically we know across uh, time, that there's across the world, there will be at least so many earthquakes of a large size happening. Uh, And it's rather like the same way with financial markets. So for example, no one could have told last year that we would see the end of Lehman Brothers uh, Bear, Stearns, Bear Stearns, and, and Merrill Lynch, uh, Merrill Lynch and or all, Ken Lewis, or, or all kinds of people, uh, and yet that happened. Right, uh, that was a coconut to most of us. I
0: wish we had had. We were having this discussion a year ago, so that you could, you Robin Hogarth, could have said to me, "Look out!"
1: Well, we we, we wrote this book more than a year ago, as you can probably imagine. <laughs> so we, we, we're, we're, we so the, the material was available. Um.
0: You touched on something that I had uh, read about. I knew about from my years at Solomon Brothers, particularly over the last uh, ten to twelve years, when the concept of risk management, mm-hmm. particularly in financial services, risk management became of um, of uh, came into vogue, and risk management was handled by risk managers. Mm-hmm. And when when the problems arose, it was noted by those who write about financial uh, insults, that the reason that risk management didn't predict, and, and you use the same term, is that the assumptions were flawed.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, isn't, isn't in some measure uh, what, what uh, chance is all about is the assumptions that we make that lead to models that um, are designed to predict? It's only as, uh, isn't the top of the, the roof only as good as the foundation?
1: If I understand the question correctly, I, I, I'll interpret this in the following way. Um, I like
0: this. I like the way you did that. Very uh, gentle, that the well, <laughs> wrong way. So if, I, if you miss it, I'll come back and okay, tell you.
1: You come back and tell me. When you build a, a statistical model to predict, you build a model and it has two elements. It has a structure and it has some un, assumptions about uncertainty. The chance element. You make assumptions about the chance element. And um, what we're arguing is that the, the, the assumptions typically about the chance element are inaccurate. That, that, that's the point we're trying to make here.
0: But how do you avoid that?
1: Well, you, 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 you can't- I mean, Do you have
0: an answer to this book? Is, is this book which I'm holding in my hand, the book Dance with Chance, and I'm speaking with Robin Hogarth, Paul McLaughlin here, um, it, it's a good book can, and I noticed in the back, as I look at it here, it's, it's under the business slash self-improvement. Yeah. So, by virtue of, w- when you say making luck work for you, with your last comment, mm-hmm. by reading this book, can you shave chance to endure? You, no,
1: you, you cannot reduce chance. Okay? Basically, chance is out there and you can't reduce it. Well, you can, you can assess not it. That's not the be- answer that I want. Yeah, I know but. it's not the answer you want, but you can assess it better. Okay. And you you can assess what we're interested in we have come up with a method methodology at the end of the book to actually assess a, a chance better we're using three steps we call it the three a method uh, assess accept and, and augment and also you can realize that when uncertainty is there that you need to Prepare yourself for it in different kinds of ways. And there's different ways you can prepare yourself for uncertainties. You can not You can take out various kinds of insurance. People aren't creative enough in thinking about, individuals I'm talking about, don't think enough about how they could use insurance to help themselves better. Um, there are things you can do so that if, if, if some kind of disaster occurs, you've, you've put some money aside already. Think about savings strategies. Too late. Well, the re- point about saving strategies, you have to save while you're making money, not, not, not until it's too late. Right. And, and when, when there are good times, instead of spending our money on that vacation, put some of it aside and develop strategies like this for handling these emergencies. Because, so you, because we, we cannot, as humans, imagine what's gonna happen after 20 years time. We don't know what the world's gonna be like in 20 years time. Think back 20 years ago to uh, 1989, I mean, what a, what a different world, 1989 to now?
0: Yes. Uh, particularly how, uh, as we were, um, well, it's interesting that you say that <clears throat> because it may, maybe the the comment dating back to the 70s about Luke Reinhardt's book about the, I think it was called The Dice Man. But I was reviewing um, this era versus the era that um, after I finished university, which is roughly the late 60s through early 70s, and to some extent, as bad as things may appear to be now, that period from say sixty-seven, sixty-eight to seventy-four, both from the world issues of us being embroiled in uh, or Vietnam, were the bad times um, and the economics, uh, mm-hmm. the the market drifting steadily down, mm-hmm. um, chance and and using that as a, as a, as an example for all those <clears throat> people who could live through that period. And find themselves on the other side, uh, there was um, you don't have to worry about chance so much because you were on a roll and and it moved forward to some extent. isn't this the same issue about investment strategy? It's sort of how long you can invest for so that if you're in the short term you should you should go to fixed income if you could earlier right. in two thousand and seven if you're going to leave if you thought you're going to need the money in the next two years but right. but people in fact didn't do that. they thought that the market was moving along so smartly that they should stay in equities yeah. to stay in the bubble.
1: There's, there's, there's they don't a, get out. Yeah, there's a, there's a rule of thumb that is sometimes talked about in, in, in financial advisors that you, if you th- you're thinking of proportioning your money between equities and bonds, the proportion of equities you should hold should be equal to uh, your age. Sorry, the bonds you should hold should be equal to your age. So as you get older, when you're fifty years old, you should be fifty years bonds, fifty years stocks, fifty percent, fifty percent. Yeah. When you're seventy years old, you should be seventy percent in bonds and thirty percent only in equities. Right. And that has a lot of sense because basically, as you get older, you're going to need that money more. Uh, when you're younger, you can afford to actually, um, you know, roll uh, the roll, dice, roll the dice, and wait for things to wait for the market to work out. Uh, and I think there's a lot of good sense in that. Uh, and the other thing i the other big advice I would say is put, bet for the, uh, invest for the long term uh, don't try and invest for the short term because basically you're not going to be very successful you're up against a huge industry out determined to take take everything away from you um, bet in the long term don't read the financial newspapers <laughs> uh, <laughs> the fa- financial newspapers is terrible yeah I mean just looking at the prices change, changing up and down is if you really want to have a heart attack it 's the best way to get it
0: well, and it, it's very interesting to say that, and, and this it's topical, but topical to your book, too, that we are today, we don't have to be specific as to when today is, but I believe the stock market as of yesterday went into, quote, the black for 2009. Yes. Mm-hmm. If you were reading the daily paper today, which you eschewed and suggested that we not, and, and I did take a look at it, so I didn't take your yeah. advice earlier. Um, the market has roughly gone from, I'll pick a number, 66, 6,700 to 84, 8,500 and if you were reading the underlying fundamentals, the assumptions, you still wouldn't assume that that would happen. Exactly. Um, and, and we find ourselves today, and maybe you can opine on this, or what you would suggest, is a people who are waiting on the sidelines because they take the larger view that the market isn't going to go anywhere in the next year because if you look at the Mm -hmm. fundamentals it's not clear how that's going to happen against and maybe that's the statistician the technologist you're the psychologist and the fact of the matter is that the market may continue to rise on the rumor so how do you marry with your co-authors the statistical view that you probably shouldn't with the psychology of the market that would say you want to buy when other people are buying.
1: I think, the, I think I go back to the thing. what we'd say is go back and have a long-term view. Uh, you should keep buying at the same rate in good times and bad times. In other words, you, if you think about investing for your pension, which is the way most people think about the, about the stock market, I think most individuals think about the stock market, what you want to make sure is that by the time you get to 65 or 70, whenever it is you retire, you have a nice nest, nest egg. You're going to be do putting money in over a period of thirty or forty years. Before that, the, the, the trick, I think, is just to keep regularly putting money in, and and you're going to put it in sometimes when the market's high and sometimes when the market's low. So you buy, you sometimes you'll be buying low and sometimes you'll be buying high. But on average, you'll probably be doing okay. I think the big mistake is to do nothing in this in sense in, in the sense of just sort of standing on standing on the sidelines, waiting for the right moment is a big mistake.
0: And I want to address... Because you, cause you
1: can't predict the right moment.
0: No, you you cannot. Is, in your experience, and we are of an age where we can look back on the last 30 or 40 years of active economic life, is part of this dance with chance maybe that we feel we have more control over our lives now than we did in the 70s? I mean, <laughs> it, it has the psyche of people in business... I almost want to say, um, I almost want to call it a a, a, uh, immortality syndrome. For some Mm -hmm. reason, whatever we have in terms of access to information or knowledge, or we see the weatherman Mm -hmm. um, constantly predicting, even if they're right or wrong, yesterday doesn't make any difference, they'll still predict the same way. In in your experience and in your mindset, and and you're much more of a global citizen than myself, Paul McLaughlin here sitting as McLaughlin at work, has, has there been some fundamental changes in, in, the, in the psyche of people? Uh, obviously, people live longer. Yeah. So that there's, there's people a, live longer. Tell me the, about that. Talk to me uh, about what to get rid of the techni- technology, because you, you handle in your book, and I want you to address happiness.
1: Okay. Happiness, okay. Well, but I don't
0: want you to address happiness yet. I want okay, you to address come the back other happiness issue. Happiness later, okay. Uh, yeah, happiness later. Um, because you also put I, happiness at the I, end I of
1: th- I, th- I think that there, is, there are two trends going on which are interesting over the last 40, 50 years. One is a trend of increasing technology which allows us to think we have greater control over the world. Uh, and I, you find that, actually, even like, for example, I noticed that some weather stations are called weather control. Although, although in, in, on TV weather stations in the U.S. are called weather control. Although they could actually control the weather, but there's an, it, there's an image of somehow, rather, by predicting weather control, there's a, a department of weather control by, by the broadcasters. Um, and so, on the one hand, we have this increasing technology which allows us to do all kinds of things and measure things very precisely in the physical sense. On the other hand, the world has become much more complex on the social sense and social economic sense. And the mistake I think has been to think is because the world's become simpler to predict on a physical sense, because our instruments are better, we can measure the wind, we can measure all things, we somehow or other can do the same thing in the socioeconomic domain. Unfortunately, I don't think our theories in the socioeconomic domain are good enough for us to be able to predict in the same way as we can in the physical domain. Uh, and so it's it's true that we have more control over certain physical things in our lives, like the speed of cars and all kinds of things like that. But we don't necessarily have more control over the um, o- over the complexity of the world. And the other thing that's important, and you mentioned the global perspective, is the interdependencies are so big. I mean, who would have thought that um, uh, because some people in the United States sold subprime mortgages, the whole world would suddenly fall into collapse, economic collapse. I mean, that's, that would have been unthinkable years ago. I mean, in the UK, for example, the, the, the thought would be, well, if the Americans have a problem with their subprime mortgages, that's their problem. It's not going to affect us. But as we know, it affects everybody. It affects business in China, all kinds of... So the interdependencies and the complexities are huge.
0: I think on that point, let me come back to you, yours about technology. One of my <coughs> contentions would be that the computer and the passage of information almost the bloomberg machine on the on the, the trader's desk around the world gives a uh, a non-nationalistic element to currencies and monies that is a dramatic shift uh, in the 40 to 50 year time frame that you're talking about
1: no i would i would agree entirely i think that um the business world is actually totally internationalized now in in that sense uh the, the 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 way we think about these things is, is, is just totally different i mean in europe for example you're all the time you're looking and see what's happening at wall street wall street is i noticed when i come to the united states looking what's happening in london and so on and so forth the world is a 24 hour a day financial market
0: right and and that is and that is a good point because only now when we wake up in the morning we're hearing how markets have closed and how futures are opening even before the market opens. Absolutely. Before the Absolutely. bell, that bell that people so, so ceremoniously ring, the yeah. opening bell and the closing bell in Wall Street, is is really um, useless.
1: Yes, yeah, it's actually, it's kind of funny. It gets back to the point I was making earlier about not looking at the financial newspapers, because basically, why do we take the closing bell as being the, the, the measure for the day? We could take any moment of the day, you know, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, any moment. So it's, there's a sort of arbitrariness about the, with the way we look at prices and these kinds of things. And you know, and within a day, the prices can vary quite a bit.
0: <laughs> we do. I don't know what the market's doing today, but, but to your point, um, it, it, from where we sit, interestingly, that people, it would be very difficult for somebody, an individual, to predict what the market is doing today.
1: Exactly. Yeah, well, I mean, we know it's, uh, I, 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 the, the best prediction is tossing a coin, 50% up, 50% down.
0: And you have an example of that, though, in, in the book, uh, I believe that I read.
1: We have I mean, a, we, I mean, that's we, not somebody at the front door. No, no, that's being interrupted by the, uh, the passage of time we were just right. talking about. No, we had an, an example in the book that of, um, if I looked at somebody who was, had beaten the market for the last six to eight years, 12 years, you might say this person has got a remarkable skill. But statistically speaking, if everybody has a 50% chance of beating the market in a particular year, and you start out with a population of say 500 people, by definition, after 10 or 15 years, there's always gonna be one or two people left who have beaten the market each year, even though the whole thing happened just by tossing a coin.
0: And I thought so, for, for the gamblers in us that there was uh, your example of the roulette wheel and how that favors the house.
1: Well, the roulette wheel favors the house because the odds are slightly in favor of the house more, more, the, 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 because of the extra extra you know, the roulette wheel, you're playing black and red. There are actually thirty seven holes, not thirty six holes. So if you, the, the the person who's playing red will always be slightly below, and the person playing black will always be slightly below.
0: It reminded in in business school when they tried to impress upon those of us who weren't buying it. And your book, I believe, I don't know whether it's fictitious Klaus or somebody else. Who is talking about the toss of a coin and it and is it is worth reminding people that while over x the nth x number of throws of a coin mm-hmm. you can it will be 50 50 roughly yeah. over a large enough number there's absolutely no predictability about the next one
1: exactly exactly that's I mean, a the, t- that's a robin
0: hogarth that is just a tough a tough coin
1: to swallow. I think that the, coin, the, 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 the point is that what's tough to swallow is the fact that the coin has no memory. Uh, and that's the only way I think I can remember it because basically the coin has no memory, but it is programmed to be 50% in the long term. But you may never get to the long term. And the famous English economist Lord Keynes said, in the long term, we're all dead. Uh, unfortunately, we have to live with the, the patterns that actually occur in the short term.
0: And while he might have anticipated that his demise would happen when he was somewhere between sixty-five and seventy-five, more and more healthy people can anticipate in in, um, in established economies that they could predictably they could predict they have to plan to be living until probably ninety.
1: That's right. Well, I think that's th- th- that's what the way the way the statistics are going right now quite clearly. And, but there are also interestingly big differences between countries. For example, the Greeks and the and and the and the, and the Japanese live a long t- long time, uh, much more so than the Americans. So there are differences.
0: And we try and learn from each other, and yet the the differences are so fundamental that it's difficult to get us onto a diet like the Japanese have. Or,
1: um, well, the, the, the Japanese have a diet you might say is good, but at the same time they're also amongst the heaviest smokers in the world. <laughs> so uh, it's not clear to me how you sought out all those particular conundrums. There are so many different co- correlated factors g- going on there that, that life expectancy is actually extraordinarily difficult to predict.
0: But for insurance companies, quite necessary.
1: Insurance well for insurance companies okay because the insurance company you don't have to predict any particular person's life expectancy you have to predict the class of people uh, all you have to know is your insurance company is how many of the 65 years old will die in a year as opposed to a, which which particular ones will die right so it's actually not so, so actually from a point of view of the insurance company actuarially uh, just using tables is actually a very very profitable business the problems for insurance companies is when they go into areas where the uncertainties are not not as clear. Uh, life expectancy on the aggregate is like an uns- is, is like a subway uncertainty. Uh, but, you know, insurance for more complex things is, is a different thing. A more complex situation would be things like um, storms in the um, south- southeastern part of the United States, where you have insurance companies face very big problems there because there's a lot of property that's insured and you have what's called correlated risks. So if one storm will come along, it'll hit not just one house but the house next door to it as well and so it's not like people spread across independently across the country dying at random in different places all the losses would occur in one spot.
0: Right and that does uh, and, and it gives it's the same the same could be said about San Francisco living on the precipice of the earthquake that exactly we, that we know will happen.
1: We know there will be a, a large earthquake in San Francisco sometime. We don't know when. Uh, but it brings around the point, what can you do about it if you can't predict it? And I think all you can do about it is you can actually just prepare yourself for when it happens. Uh, by means of which you have to have building codes so that buildings are built to certain specifications where people should have, should have in their homes um, uh, water and all kinds of things like that. Uh, for example, I have uh, my, my three children live in the San Francisco area. And I've asked them all, how prepared are they? <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, and, well, they and, well, and their response? A, a, well, an excellent
1: question, no, Professor. No, well, Hagar. I mean, That's well, a one, li- one lives in, a, in 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 San Francisco, but in a new building. The new building ha- has met all the uh, the, the, the uh, earthquake-prone things. Another one lives. in... It, it meets the assumptions. It meets, it meets, well, the engineering kind of assumptions, right? Uh, which may not be quite so bad. Uh, the The other one li- lives in 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 Palo Alto, and she tells me well she 's got special water supplies put away and etc st- et etc cetera, et cetera. but i think that 's very important
0: let 's move to happiness
1: happiness okay because
0: I had one i had a corollary to happiness which i don 't uh, if, if you if you discussed it in here i didn 't see it um, and that 's pain mm-hmm. pain and happiness i recently uh, went had a back operation, and the way they prepare you for the pain is they ask you to describe your pain, but it's very loose, the metric on how you feel, Mm -hmm. much like your happiness. But I did see, I want you to address happiness, but I did see a chart here, which I thought was fascinating, on the average net satisfaction and average hours of daily activities. Mm -hmm. Seems to me that on a a number of the charts that are in your book, Dance with Chance, and could you, Identify your co authors because I don't
1: well, want My co authors are hand. Spiros Makridakis and Anil Gaba.
0: Thank you. Um, there are a couple of charts in here that, by having all the columns lined up and they're having a certain metric uh, formality, to, two of them are pretty frightening. Um, and, and they really expose us to activities and, and the net satisfaction, which you can describe, and then the average number of days. And if one multiplied
1: it out, there are certain things
0: that you, you simply wouldn't do should be
1: happy. Well, you should ask yourself the question, what is it, where does happiness what is hap- where does happiness come from? And one of the things you could argue is happiness comes from how you're spending your time. So this is your activities. Uh, and um, if you're choosing your activities and your activities are actually engrossing you in various kinds of ways, you're liable to be more happy. If you're involved in, in doing activities for other people, uh, which you don't like, <laughs> You're liable to be unhappy. So I think one of the most interesting indicators of happiness is the extent to which you can choose the activities you're doing. And uh, you can't control necessarily how happy you're going to be, but at least you can actually get get some of that noise out of the system.
0: But doesn't that address the false sense of security with having just another depending on your circumstances, another $1,000, another $10,000, well, or that's, another $100,000? Uh, well, that's a
1: separate story. I think that's <coughs> a, the a story of how, to what, what extent does your happiness increase with income? And there's a lot of um, evidence that ha- happiness is not necessarily increasing with income, but with relative income. In other words, um, if I earn uh, $100,000 a year, I may be quite happy, but if my, my neighbor earns $110,000, i will be miserable. <laughs> Uh, so, there is a, there's other issues involved in that as
0: well. So, it, to select a happy community, it's best to have be nested with a group of like souls?
1: Not necessarily like souls, but people who are enjoying what they're doing. So, for example, I would imagine that uh, a company which had a very good good working environment, as you were talking about, would actually have very happy employees who could actually work quite hard. If all the people were engaged in in, in the task, liked the work, uh, were involved in it, they may not be similar, but they would actually be quite happy in their work. And I think that has huge implications because um, if people are happy in their work, I think they're liable to do better work.
0: And it may be one of the um, underscoring discordant themes about the excesses on Wall Street. That some of the compensations seemed unrelated perhaps to the amount of work or the responsibility um, or or the long term results of certain actions absolutely, that absolutely.
1: I think there was a very loose link between inputs and outputs in those situations
0: Where does dance with chance go what what is what's the takeaway? what is the impact of this book? What would you and your colleagues again written in a very a very readable format for a statistician and a psychologist and a uh, what, what is your decision analyst? And a decision analyst. Um, what, what's the best, other than being a bestseller,
1: which well, is that's is one, one. that's what one like uncertain event. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, the, the bottom line on, on, on Dance with Chance is that we, for important decisions, we often overestimate our skills and that we need to be able to get a better handle on our skills and, therefore, prepare ourselves better to face the future.
0: So if we, if we understand what we do well and we understand what makes us happy, the combination of those things in a perfect world will allow us to array chance
1: in a way that can work for us. Can help us help us do better. Yeah, I th- I, the way I think about it is as follows. I think I take the analogy with a batting average, for in baseball, it would be great if you were a baseball player every time you were at bat you hit the ball for a home run. But we know that's impossible. So in life we can't actually hit every ball for a home run, but we can because there's always going to be a statistical element in the way the ball is thrown at us by the pitcher and so on and so forth. But what we can aim for is a high batting average so that we, on average, can actually do better. So I think that that's accepting, you, you accept the fact that there's uncertainty, you still work hard, and you try and get that average to be a bit better, and that's the best you can do. And then you'll be happy. Hopefully you'll be happy at that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dance with
0: Chance is the book, making luck work for you, and my guest has been Robin Hogarth, Robin, good luck with the book, and and good luck with the concept of of chance, and I hope our respective uh, investment theories play out in the long run.
1: Good, thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And that was Robin Hogarth, as you
0: know, Paul McLaughlin. McLaughlin at work here with the second stanza, Rethink with Rick Merrifield, a business manifesto for cutting costs and boosting innovation. What do you need to do today? Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at work, your audio guide to the workplace. The work wonk, and also in this case, a fellow Hoya to one Rick Merrifield. Rick is the author of Rethink, a business manifesto for cutting costs and boosting innovation, written before its time and uh, issued in 2009. Rick uh, Merrifield, thanks for joining me, Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at work, and uh, Where does Rethink start?
2: It starts with uh, the core idea of the book, which is something that I call the how-trap. And by the way, thank you very much for having me. I'm I'm excited to be on the show. Um, The how-trap is something that that, uh, I've come to realize is a totally human condition that that most people are in. And it's not because we're stupid or we're not trying hard that we we fall into this trap. And one of the examples that I I like to use is when we're driving to a, a favorite restaurant or destination, we sort of fall into this rut where we associate the route we take with the destination itself. So when somebody drives a different way, you look at them sort of sideways and say, well, why are we going this way? It really doesn't matter how you get there as long as you get to the restaurant. And that sort of how attachment to how we go about our day-to-day, our work as well as things at home, prevents us and makes it very difficult for us to rethink uh, opportunities to, to improve things, whether it's a cost-cutting thing or an innovation thing or or just being smarter overall about doing something. And that's, that's where it starts.
0: You were a philosophy major at Georgetown. You've been involved in technology. You're writing a book, uh, excuse me, a manifesto <laughs> entitled Rethink, which gives it a certain intellectual property. But you're talking about cutting costs and boosting innovation. Are you exactly where you should be, Rick?
2: I think so, um, for, for a couple of reasons. Now, I'll back up and say that, that because the how trap is such a pervasive condition, um, it, it applies to so many different things. Uh, w- one of the things that drew me to Microsoft when I, as I began to sort of get through some of these ideas, I knew that Microsoft had some of the greatest products in the world. I'm not a technology person, I, but I know that they make, we make some great products. But I also know that we've earned a reputation of having really inelegant conversations with our customers sometimes because we're not business people by as a as a collection of Microsoft people and it and so customers would get frustrated that you know they'd come to us and say you know i I'm, I'm uh maybe an airline and i I'm trying to improve the way passengers check in for flights and they say okay that that's our business problem the uh, so they'd come to us in Microsoft and say, well we don't have a product called check in for flights at the airport." So we have to somehow figure out which of our products aligns with that, and it would often be an imperfect conversation. So the reason that it's right for me to be here is that getting customers and Microsoft and our partners out of this how trap helps people have these much more objective and clear conversations about what they're trying to get to as a business, and then from there, as a secondary or even tertiary conversation, sometimes then have the technology conversation. Say, okay, we've got this airport check-in problem. How much of it's a Technology issue how much of it's a training issue we need to retrain some of our the employees that are on the other side of the counter, and how much of it's a process issue um, so that's that's why I belong here
0: now in your time with Microsoft uh, was that something they had to learn and that's that's what led you to rethink is that what gave birth to this book
2: no they uh, as we, there's a little, there's a bit of a, about this in the introduction there there's some people that put together a a big uh, six foot by six foot map that outlines some of the basic activities of a typical business, and that map was used to inform some acquisitions that we did uh, back in two thousand to get us in the business application software space like uh, ERP and customer relationship management software um, and once this this that the poster served that purpose fantastically well um, they kept taking the poster around to customers, and customers were like, wow, we've never really seen a map of a business like that. That's different from a process map, and it's different from other diagrams we've seen before. It really helps us set the context for our conversation in really clear and transparent terms. And so they, the, the, the executives that ended up hiring me said, you know, we, we think there's something here, but we're not quite sure what it is, and, and whether it's a consulting offering or whether it's a product, but we know that it helps us have a much clearer conversation about where software belongs and where it doesn't belong, and then when it does belong, there how we position a specific product. So they brought me in to help answer that question, and so I looked at it and made some assertions. I as said, well, let me do it as a methodology for a little while, coming from a consulting background, so I can get some dirt under my fingernails, as it were, and, and learn what this method does and how it's different from other methods and how it complements, as we've learned, things like process re and Six Sigma and Lean, some really prevalent methods today. And we had such amazingly, i say cartoonishly, great results in terms of what we did with these customers. Uh, then Only then, I think, did, did Microsoft realize, wow, this, is, this really is something different that we need to spend some time on. And then, so over the last five years, we've spent building up this method and sharing it with customers and partners and just continue to have such great results that led to the Harvard Business Review article that I did last summer and now the book.
0: And you were the person who put the original map together that they were so impressed with?
2: I did not put the original map together, but I added. That they, they, there was mostly assertions. It was not that organized, and I said, we need to get more specific about what what the boxes on the in the picture, for example, mean and, and define them. And so I added all of that definition. Got very explicit about what what they were, and that helped uh, define how they're different from process. Um, and so that was what I added.
0: Did you happen to study logic at Georgetown? And I did. Whole, actually, as a matter of fact, I did. The whole notion of syllogisms, did that help you in putting them <laughs> out together?
2: Yeah, I took logic, and uh, it, it served me well.
0: Uh, at the bottom it says, What do you need to do today? So you've got the, a, a title rethink. You've got a, a rather something you could put on the, 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 the a manifesto. Always think of putting those up on the cathedral doors. And then you have at the bottom, What do you need to do today? When somebody picks up the book, what do you want them to think is in it?
2: What I want them to think and and realize is that this book is going to help them today make decisions about where they need to start working, whether it's cutting costs or eliminating waste, where there's a lot of opportunity to do that right now, or if their business has drifted into an operating model that's not entirely familiar and they're really struggling, this is going to help them today Make some decisions about what how to how to look at their list of priorities and, and see if they've got the right stuff on the list or not, and make some decisions to go forward on, on from that from that point.
0: Let me be entirely unfair. Go ahead. Where was this book this time last year?
2: Uh, let's see. It's May. So this is this is a year ago when the Harvard Business Review article was coming out, and. Um, the the summary of the article, uh, which was called The Next Revolution in Productivity, reads, uh, trapped inside your company's processes or activities that can now be swapped, bought, and sold. If you liberate them, you can create a radically more efficient plug-and-play business. And the trap word in that, which the editors of the Harvard Business Review came up with that use of the word trap, that was where the month that 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 came out, I came up with the phrase, the how trap. And that was sort of the, the spark that led to the book. Uh, really.
0: What was it that this time last year did not spur people to rethink?
2: It's a great question. Um, So I'll give you sort of a two-part answer. The first answer is that regardless of whether times are good or times are are rough, people are in a trap either way. So a year ago, or even two years ago, when things were pretty good, we were still in a growth mode. And we were our sense of urgency was oh my gosh how are we going to keep up with this growth having to make some tough prioritization decisions of there's so much going on we have to make some decisions to keep up with the growth now sort of the tide has turned radically as we know um people are having to say oh my gosh we have to we we have to now cut a lot of the waste that's grown into this business in the last 20 years of of nonstop growth which is totally normal but we also have to say look if if things are shrinking we need to decide which direction we're going to point this organization. Are we going to point to a very specific customer segment instead of trying to be all things to all people, which we may have been trying to do before? And so being more specific and more targeted in the, in the retraction mode is, is how they should rethink today rather than a year ago. But in both cases, people are in the same how trap.
0: And I, and I want you, because I missed the explanation that clearly is important to repeat. What is the how trap and, and define
2: it for us? Yeah, so the how trap, that was the, the – it, it separates what you do from how you do it. So if what you're doing is, arrive, is getting to a restaurant and how you're doing it is, is driving some, some road, it usually doesn't matter how you do it as long as you achieve the outcome. A, a, a work example that I use a lot is sending a fax. So I'll go up to, to somebody, If I'm a, say I'm a, a business process person and I'll, I'm trying to figure out if there's a way to optimize a process in, in an organization. I'll walk up to somebody and say, they're at the fax machine, I'll say, what are you doing? And the person will probably look at you sideways and say, well, I'm sending a fax. And I can tell you right now that, in, at least in, in my vernacular, that's not what they're doing. What they're doing is communicating status or confirming an order, something very specific. That, that's the what. How they're doing it is with a fax machine. But if I hadn't made that distinction, if I were still, if I still had my how trap hat on, uh, I'd say, "Oh, you're, you're sending a fax is what you're doing. Is that a, a necessary step in the job function that you're doing?" And the person would say, "Well, yeah, I have to do this." Say, so, "Okay, so if, I, if I'm collecting business requirements, so I'm going to write down sending a fax is a requirement for the business to do this particular set of functions." Whereas if I go in and say the requirement is to confirm the order, and today it's being done by a, with a fax machine. It's a very different way of writing down the requirements so that we can actually say, does it matter whether we use a fax machine or not? Could we use a phone or could we use an email or... you know, what are other options for, for how we do it?
0: What always surprises me is sort of the Peter Allen, everything old is new again. Mm-hmm. Um, is, it, is it because technology supplies us with mundane routes to solving old problems, and then we stop thinking about it?
2: Well, I think there's there are a couple of reasons for it. One is that uh, in the last 20 years, we've been gro- we've all been growing so fast in most of our organizations um, that it's sort of the you're too busy chopping wood to stop and sharpen your axe situation, where unless something is so dramatically better from what you've been doing in the past, it's not worth that time to stop and catch your breath and look at things differently and go, wow. It's unbelievable how much easier or faster or whatever the answer is for this solution. And that's that's what we're finding with this approach. Which is right. if I could just interrupt, that's one of the reasons we kept, there's a chapter about Eclipse Aviation, which is a company that got a lot of notoriety, but it's also had its fair share of struggles. And and we, we talked about whether we would eliminate that chapter because they've, they've been in such tough shape lately. And I said, no, it's really important that people realize that, that Vern Rayburn, who really started the company, did some amazingly innovative things in manufacturing and customer segmentation, uh, but still ended up not not winning. That's I think I still think that. it's going to happen. I mean, it was the right idea, and even in this recession, the the, the realization that Vern Rayburn had was private jets are super super expensive, and there, if you just eliminate the customization, people got all kinds of choices for leather in the interior and all you know the the the, the knobs that you have on your 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 bathroom fixtures and all that. He just stripped all that out and said, yeah, I'm still going to make it nice and luxurious, but it's going to be one-size-fits-all luxury. I talk a lot to companies today to say, look, be really clear who your customer is and what they really value, because it's changing a lot, but people tend to have, is it value, is it speed, is it quality, is it whatever? And and don't just assume you're you're competing with your next-door neighbor, uh, because there's all kinds of opportunity in the segments today that are, are, are being ignored.
0: Yeah, I think it's a very. While you were speaking, I was uh, parallel thinking. I hadn't, uh, you know. Now that I've seen, I guess out in the West Coast in San Francisco, there are a lot of segways around, and I hadn't, and and they're fairly common now. Um, yeah. And I noticed on a 60 minute piece a couple of weeks ago that the founder of Segway, who I I don't know his name, but I had read about him. Um, he, that he's now involved in, 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 uh, in developing artificial limbs and using mental the, the, uh, neurotransmissions to operate muscles. It's fascinating to see how those people who were inventive in one field can continue with that skill and think about how they can apply their technology and knowledge in other areas. Right. Um, let, let me ask you a tough question. Uh, is rethinking capable of making sense of our healthcare industry?
2: Yes. Uh, So uh, is it a silver bullet? No. But is it a really useful way to start the conversation and uh, and test some of these how-trap discussions and say, is it really important that we fill out this many forms? Is it really important that, you know, what, what are some of the real opportunities? Let's define the outcomes. That's the what. What outcome do we need to get to? In healthcare, is it? In fact, we actually just had a conversation with an organization last week. Is it? Are we trying? Is the goal to get the most number covered? Is the goal to get people living longer? Is the what is the goal? What is the outcome we need to get to? And then let's start to break up the system in the pieces to say well, which of these pieces is or is not aligned with that goal. And then what should we do about it? Because I, I don't, th- I don't think there's a common vision that's been articulated to say, is it you know just. Giving 100% coverage for people who need it is it, or, or something else? I, I don't think the goal has been clearly articulated, uh, and that that's a great way to start getting out of the how trap. So you can then back up and say, okay, this is our goal, and it's not going to be, it won't be that simple, obviously, but with the ten goals, and then just map them, get break down the work into these blocks of what the work is that we we'll often call business capabilities, and see how well they align.
0: Is there Putting on your or your philosopher's cap, is there a is there a systematic solution to something like healthcare rethinking when we might agree that we'll never agree on a sufficiently common goal to affect the economic uh, framework?
2: Yes, and I think the one of the challenges is that, that uh, historically. Uh, companies have been t- sort of trained to have horse blinders and, and look inside of the four walls of their company for improvements and optimization. So they sort of say, okay, we're in this ecosystem, let's let's optimize within ourselves. Now I think the opportunity is to really look across the entire ecosystem. And we were talking, you've got, say, the, the human genome people, the Institute for Systems Biology, for example. You've got uh, the, the National Institutes of Health. You've got private health care. You've got you know organizations like the Gates Foundation, all of these different interested parties that ha- are, are differently motivated but have similar related goals and how you have those conversations and say, okay, National Institutes of Health, this is what your charter is. Here's how you snap to pharmaceuticals and hospitals and Institute for Systems Biology so that everybody can achieve their own respective goals but do it in a more aligned way than we've seen historically. And because the this how-trap language that I talk about, people get so embedded with their own company-specific, industry-specific language, it gets very difficult for people to communicate with each other because their terminology doesn't snap together. And we found that stripping that how language away and getting into the what language allows this more cross-border conversation across these organizations that are in the same industry but just are doing very different things.
0: Does your book, and and, uh, you and I had discussed the fact that Rita McGrath was on uh, with me, uh, Paul yep. McGawker, and I should identify because I've had such a good conversation with Rick Merrifield. I haven't given his, him or his book uh, sufficient credit. Uh, the book is Rethink. The subtext below the re is what do you need to do today, and the, the uh, less popular title might be a business manifesto for cutting costs and <coughs> boosting innovation. The imprint is Financial Times Press. And um, it is the elaboration on an article that was in the Harvard Business Review a year ago. Rick Merrifield is my guest, Rita Gunther-McGrath, with Discovery uh, Driven Growth, with whom you shared a panel or or a discussion as recently as last week in Spain.
2: It was last month, actually. Uh, We were up and uh, there was a great big event uh, where we had panel discussions about cutting costs in tough times and how different, that needs to be what, the different lens that needs to be used in tough times, as opposed to sort of the day-to-day cost-cutting that, that was done when you know when things were better. Um.
0: <laughs> when, when things were, when things were better, we're all trying to get back to those, those those times when things were better, and right. We don't want to get back to it the same way. Um, is this book is rethink? And, and you're as you said, you're not a technologist, but you work now within a technology company, one of the one of the world's finest. Uh, is rethink? in the in the framework of technology and the technology is what has not allowed us to rethink if you if this was not in Microsoft could this lend itself this process lend itself or is it a natural uh, unholy alliance between how we are rely on technology now to do things and yet it may be exactly the blinders on that doesn't allow us to uh, to rethink.
2: No, this is certainly not a. As um, I said before, early on, that the technology conversation has to happen as a secondary or tertiary conversation after there's a, a clear understanding and articulation of what it is that you're trying to accomplish. And uh, and so for for a long time, you know, a customer will come and say, "I've got this airport check-in problem," and. The, the, um, Microsoft will say, "Well, as I said, we, we don't have an airport check-in product, so we're going to kind of have to do some guesswork about what the solution is." And so now that we can reduce the business problem to, "Okay, we've got the we're confirming a reservation, we're doing a survey, we've got some logistics," now everybody, Microsoft and our competitors, could say, "Oh, okay, now we're really clear on what your business problem is." Let us explain to you how we snap our value message, whether it's products or consulting services or a blend of that, through our own uh, under our own roof as well as from our partners. How we would would deliver that, so there can be a more, you know, we're literally on a on a level playing field in the conversation now. So we can really show where we have really great products and where you know our products are, are not going to be the best fit, and that's going to happen sometimes, as much as we hate that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that, that, that's right. You got to get. We're never going to arrive at perfection, so you're always going to be. I, I'm always intrigued by a, a woodcut that I saw on the cover of the New York Times talking about nature, and it had a bar, and it said that balance in nature is only a spot in time through which nature is rushing to another imbalance, and then <laughs> it will correct itself. And I think yep. that we've seen that in the uh, in the commercial world. What is the uh, last question for Rick Merrifield, what is the book before Rethink, if not Think for the first time, and where does, what's the next, not the next new new thing, but where do you where do you think this, after we're getting cutting costs and boosting innovation, what do you see is the the next thing that business is going to have to do? How does it evolve? How does Rethink Lend itself to a constant methodology yep
2: great question so um the I think the the sort of, one of the reasons we put the word manifesto on the cover was because we'd spent uh time with some of the the, the, the two guys who who created uh, process reengineering mike hammer and, and jim champion- unfortunately Mike hammer passed away last year but but we really think that process was the was the last big idea that that rippled through business that had was incredibly successful and we think that this and we got a, we were delighted to have a quote from Jim Champy on the, on the back of the book that I this say. this this is we really think that the next wave that will unlock the next wave of productivity and really help people figure out how to take advantage of some of the things that have transpired since uh since that book came out in the early 90s looking forward i think what we're seeing already is is very early uh maturing of social networking and the way individuals socially and professionally use social networks um, to communicate to recommend products to do all kinds of things and I, th- I think that the rethinking that's going on is, is the way people use some of those tools whether it's Twitter or Facebook or uh, Amazon and Google how we relate to those networks uh, is is going everything will be different again in as that matures and that's where we, that's where we're heading
0: and of course, the not only the architects but the purveyors of that social network are barely in their twenties that's right so it would be interesting to see how how they mature
2: yeah i mean it's 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 a i mean it's another really exciting time to see those I and mean, I participate in Facebook quite a bit as well, and it's it's fascinating to see how that has just in the last year has evolved um the way people use it and the way people talk about it, and it's just become it's 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 woven its way into the fabric of our lives, and or we've woven it, I should say, and it's it's exciting, and um, so I, I I can't wait to see what's next.
0: Do some of the younger people who you have quote befriended take <laughs> offense that somebody over 30 is uh, on Facebook?
2: No, but it's funny, it's, it, the 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 behavior is very different. I mean, it's it's almost the. Yeah, I don't know if you have children, but anytime I, I I pick up a babysitter for my my son who's about eight years old, uh, you get this look that's sort of like, hi old guy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'll talk to you, but you know, <laughs> there's, that, there's that there's that 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 sort of understood uh, lack uh, disrespect or, or lack of you know I'm not really interested in have a conversation with you, but I'm going to because of, <laughs> but there's a little bit of that you know when I interact with with. Uh, with the younger crowd on on uh, on Facebook, so it's funny to see that that is consistent uh, on Facebook as well as in, in from, from the real life experiences.
0: Well, without going into detail, you can imagine how they
2: look at me. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, I, I think actually I don't think they I don't think they distinguish. They think it's a binary thing. Once you're an old guy, you're an old guy. <laughs>
0: yeah. well. Rick Merrifield, from your lips to God's ears, thank you. thank you very much for the conversation today. We wish you all the best. Again, the book is Rethink. You have to turn it on its side to see it. It's an interesting, a new interesting shape. I think it's very readable, um, and uh, it's in, in uh, font size for old guys, and it uh, and has a nice, uh, nice way about it with a little bit of philosophy mixed in. We wish you the best for the, look, for the book, and we are uh, grateful for you joining me today, Paul McLaughlin on McLaughlin at Work. Thanks for Thank not. you
2: very much for your time. I appreciate it. And if I could just mention, there's rethinkbook.com if people want some additional information.
0: For all those listening, it's green. You won't miss it. There aren't very many books. It's color right out there. <laughs> and uh, we look forward to seeing the sequel.
2: Thank you very much.
0: A lot of information, a lot to absorb. That's what you got here at McLaughlin at Work. We help you get through the day by listening. Listen often. Tune back in. McLaughlin at Work. Paul
2: McLaughlin, your host, your audio guide to the workplace, the workwalk. Till next week.